welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Coming to you from the road, and it seems like it's cat week, and not the cute kind. Although I must admit, I am not a huge feline fan anyway. No, my friends, all the decisions this week touch in some way on the Convention Against Torture some in a big way. So let's dive into the four cases about just when, why, and how our country does or does not protect people who fear death in their home country. Seems pretty important when you put it like that. First is Chavez v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on October 21st, 2022. Starting off with two non-citizen wins out of the First Circuit, published Friday afternoon. Can't believe how active the First Circuit has been. I'd be annoyed, except both of these First Circuit decisions were litigated by friend of the podcast, ACLU New Hampshire attorney, Sang Yap Kim. Huge congratulations, sir. So let's do it. This case is about withholding of removal and convention against torture protection, mainly for withholding imputed political opinions and imputed particular social groups. Mr. Chavez is from El Salvador, but he's lived in the U.S. since 1997. While growing up in El Salvador, though, he and his family experienced a lot of violence. His brother was killed by police as a teenager in the late 1970s, and he himself was stopped by police and harassed and beaten by police as a young teenager in the 1990s. He was also shot at by police when corrupt officers stole a bicycle from him, as was another brother during the incident who still requires a colostomy bag to this day due to being shot by corrupt police. Mr. Chavez, 15 or 16 years old at the time, was sent to jail for some months for resisting police, who again were trying to shoot him for trying to steal his bicycle. Because the thing is, at like 12 or 13 years old, Mr. Chavez had gotten a tattoo to be affiliated with the Mara 18 street gang as an act of, quote, youthful rebellion, end quote. Pretty crazy if you ask me. 
Although he wasn't a member and he didn't become one at any time when he got older, police still seemed to assume that he was with the gang. Again, all of that happened in the early 1990s, and later he was threatened by MS-13 members, the other powerful gang in El Salvador, because of his youthful rebellion. He refused their demands to join and beat him to the point of fracturing his ribs. And when he informed on a member of MS-13 involved in a robbery, El Churro, he was threatened with death and fled to the United States. Quote, he was not about to stick around, waiting for El Churro to act on his threat, end quote. During that time, MS-13 killed his friend in El Salvador and Mr. Chavez's nephew. What a world. He was placed in removal proceedings in 2011, applied for asylum, had the application denied, and was physically deported to El Salvador in 2012. Quote, On the day he returned to El Salvador, someone came to his house and fired a weapon into the air, which he took to be a message to make him afraid. End quote. And his neighbors were murdered, and Mr. Chavez talked back to MS-13 leaders, and the MS-13 members who had beat him up all those years ago came over and pointed guns at his house. Terrible stuff. Mr. Chavez then fled to the U.S. again shortly after that, mainly because MS-13 members said that they intended to come by soon and check out his tattoos, which again indicate an affiliation, albeit a fake one, with Mara 18. In the U.S. with a prior removal order, though, Mr. Chavez had limited options after ICE reinstated that final order of removal. Lucky for him, he passed his reasonable fear interview and was placed in withholding-only proceedings to get his claim heard by an immigration judge. But only, of course, withholding of removal and cat protection. No path to a green card, but hopefully avoiding what appears to be a very violent El Salvador. Withholding-only proceedings. Mr. Chavez sought withholding of removal relief based on some interesting protected grounds. Namely, quote, on account of his imputed membership in Mara 18 and his imputed or actual anti-MS-13 political opinion, end quote. Dr. Lawrence Leduc, an expert witness on El Salvador, testified. Congratulations on being recognized as an expert by the First Circuit, Dr. Leduc. The IJ and the BIA denied. The First Circuit remanded. To recap, withholding is like asylum, but requires that the non-citizen establish that they will more likely than not be persecuted. That's a higher burden than asylum. There might be an easier burden to satisfy on nexus for withholding as compared to asylum, depending on the circuit. One of the wonderful counterintuitive aspects of immigration law at the moment, based on the crazy text of the INA. But we're going to put that ball of wax and severe circuit split off to the side, because this decision is not about that. Almost was, though. Check out footnote 4. And waxy that ball is, by the way. Anyway, the IJ and the BIA didn't believe that Mr. Chavez's imputed political opinion claim could stand. Because remember, he's not actually a Mara 18 member, and he doesn't really oppose MS-13 such that it's a political opinion. So said the IJ and the BIA. Political opinion is one of the five protected grounds that will enable a non-citizen to obtain asylum or withholding of removal. But an imputed political opinion is a subcategory of that. That is, a political opinion that an individual doesn't actually hold, but that people believe he or she holds. In the First Circuit, quote, To prevail on an imputed political opinion claim, a petitioner must show that 1. The persecutor perceived him to hold a political belief, and 2. The persecution was because of that perceived political belief, end quote. 
Although the First Circuit ultimately remanded, it did agree that the evidence didn't sufficiently show that MS-13 would harm Mr. Chavez or that it had harmed him because of a belief that he held an anti-MS-13 political opinion. Won't harp on it too much, but for example, the First Circuit agreed that the record showed that Mr. Chavez, quote, was a local, concerned citizen opposed to criminal acts within his neighborhood, end quote. A noble character trait to have in El Salvador, it would appear, and a fear of death is a fear of death. And everyone seems to agree that Mr. Chavez has a fear of death. But immigration law requires that you fear death for the right reason. And on this point, Mr. Chavez did not have the right reason, said the court. But that still leaves the imputed particular social group claim that Mr. Chavez brought, a fear from MS-13 and police, because MS-13 and or police in El Salvador would incorrectly believe that he was a member of the Mara 18 gang. Remember the tattoo? Are imputed particular social groups even cognizable under immigration law? Imputed political opinions definitely are, but imputed particular social groups? It's a bit of a developing area. I know the Third Circuit made a favorable holding early on in the podcast, but it appears that the BIA held that they couldn't be a while ago in the 2008 decision, Matter of EAG. But again, kind of. Matter of EAG, it appears, said that gang membership itself can't be a particular social group. I don't know if that would be good law today, although it appears to be good law in the First Circuit, but even if it is, does that mean an imputed gang membership can't be a protected ground? It's not the same concern. The BIA in matter of EAG based its opinion in part on the fact that Congress didn't want to give relief to gang members. Maybe so. But even if that is something that international asylum law cares about, the same rationale doesn't extend to imputed gang members, people who aren't actually gang members. So said the First Circuit. The First Circuit has rejected matter of EAG in part as unreasonable under Chevron Step 2, as applied to falsely accused gang members. That's a big holding. Restated, matter of EAG is not entirely good law in the First. That holding joins the Ninth Circuit too, Vasquez Rodriguez v. Garland, Episode 67. A Liz Montano summary, I believe. So the First Circuit remanded for the BIA to adjudicate the issue without matter of EAG. That is, the BIA needs to assume that under the right circumstances, imputed gang membership can be a particular social group and a protected ground under asylum law. Get it, First Circuit! And so again, congratulations attorneys sang Yop Kim, Giles Basante, and some wonderful professors and law students from the University of Maine School of Law on the win. Plus, of course, ACLU New Hampshire. And that's not all. There's still Convention Against Torture Protection. It's just a really long case, to be honest. And remember, the police did lots of terrible stuff to Mr. Chavez and his family when he was younger. The cat doesn't have a protected ground nexus requirement. It doesn't matter how you fear death or torture, but only that you fear death or torture, and that it be from the government itself or individuals that the government acquiesced to. And cops are the government. So it certainly seems like Mr. Chavez might have suffered past torture in this case. But unlike past persecution and its effect on the likelihood of future persecution, suffering past torture doesn't create a presumption that a non-citizen will suffer torture in the future. But it's quite relevant. 
Unfortunately for Mr. Chavez here, and to summarize very quickly, it's been a long time since all the things occurred to him, and it looks like the police didn't harm him when he was deported for the first time in 2012. So that's the police. As I mentioned, torture from non-government actors can also result in a Convention Against Torture grant, but only if the government acquiesces to that torture, or at least if it's willfully blind to the torture. Going to get into that more in the next case, but suffice it to say here, the First Circuit wasn't convinced by the usual evidence showing that the Salvadoran government is trying, without much success, to rein in the MS-13 gang. Of course, there is other evidence that shows otherwise, but in this case, the First Circuit wasn't going to overturn the IJ and the BIA on the issue. Plus, El Churro was prosecuted. Gotta give a shout-out, though, to ACLU New Hampshire's argument that the police will become aware of Mr. Chavez immediately upon his removal, because right now, there is a mandatory quarantine and mandatory checks in place for individuals deported to El Salvador due to COVID-19. I see you, counsel. Probably a good argument in many countries to show that the police will become aware of your client. And that is Chavez v. Garland. That was a lot. And so is this one. H.H.V. Garland, published by the First Circuit on October 21st, 2022. The First Circuit seems to have not gotten the message that Friday was unofficial Taylor Swift Day. So I've been told. I am not a Swifty. Ignore what you've heard. This case is about cat protection, with an acronym name, of course. Mr. H.H. is somehow a citizen of both El Salvador and Honduras. Unreal. Am I about to summarize essentially two cat decisions in one because ICE sought to deport him either to El Salvador or to Honduras? I am. He entered the U.S. as a child and was ordered removed in absentia when he failed to appear for the hearing set for him, a child. He was not removed and he got involved in criminal street gangs in Maryland, namely MS-13. He did bad stuff, but he started cooperating with the feds when he was caught. Quote, Most prominently, he testified in the prosecution of a high-ranking MS-13 leader who was eventually convicted and sentenced to 60 years imprisonment, end quote. Unsurprisingly, there is now a, quote, Luz Verde, end quote, or green light order to kill Mr. H.H. on site by any MS-13 member, wherever he is. After his release from federal custody, he actually got that initial removal order reopened, but due to his criminal history, he was only eligible for deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. No longer part of MS-13, he was naturally terrified of them. For example... Even in U.S. prisons, he was moved through at least seven facilities in an effort to avoid gang members. Indeed, quote, during his time in federal custody, MS-13 members were, in fact, sent to kill him, end quote. Incredible stuff. And again, this is in the United States. Mr. H.H. had his experts. One of them testified, quote, with respect to Honduras... Due to widespread corruption, MS-13 and local police forces are often intertwined in several ways, end quote. The expert also testified that, quote, the perception of Mr. H.H.'s gang membership would place him at risk of direct harm from law enforcement, end quote. Check out the designated expert reasons why. 
like two pages worth in this decision. But essentially, the expert testified that in Honduras, gangs and police are intertwined, and the police who aren't get so frustrated at their ability to deal with the gang problem that many simply execute suspected gang members on site. Similarly with El Salvador, said the other expert, quote, The Salvadoran president had informed law enforcement officers that they would not face consequences for killing gang members and that the government would not record such deaths, end quote. And it's still not working. The gangs are essentially running many things in El Salvador, testified the experts. Some excellent country conditions reported for non-citizens in this case. In 2020, the IJ granted deferral of removal as to El Salvador, but not as to Honduras. Both sides appealed, and the BIA dismissed both appeals. That means that Mr. HH was going to get deported to Honduras had the First Circuit not stepped in. But it did. I gave that away at the top of the episode. And like in that last First Circuit case, ACLU and Mr. HH took on a presidential BIA decision, matter of SV, all the way back from 2000. I guess the IJ and the BIA relied on that two-decade-old decision below? In that decision, apparently, the BIA had held 22 years ago that, quote, the respondent must demonstrate that the officials are willfully accepting of the torturous activities, end quote, in order for non-governmental torture to qualify under the CAT. But willfully accepting is not the same as willful blindness, said the First Circuit here. Willful blindness is the standard. So matter of SV falls in the First Circuit. I might need some music for such things going forward if all of these BIA decisions are going to be falling in all the circuits because of ACLU New Hampshire. To explain itself, the First Circus took us back to school. President Reagan signed the Convention Against Torture in 1988, back when supporting immigration wasn't such a, how shall I put it, wedge issue in the United States. But even at that time, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee appeared to believe that the cat didn't go far enough. That is, that it would be too easy for foreign governments to permit torture to occur within their borders. In this vein, the first Bush administration promulgated regulations that permitted a cat finding based simply on a government's awareness of torture by non-governmental actors. Non-citizens didn't need to show that the government knew of the actual torture. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee commented on this with approval, noting that this was a willful blindness standard and that it was appropriate. The regulations in effect today reflect all of this. I will simply pause to note how Ira Kurzban will love this legislative history overview and analysis. It is not fun to conduct people. It is not fun. Government awareness is different from the willful acceptance standard implemented by the BIA in matter of SV. That means that matter of SV conflicts with the intent of Congress, as just explained. Quote, The concept of willful acceptance necessarily includes knowledge of the matter one is accepting, and excludes the concept of willful blindness, end quote. Can't do that, because willful blindness is the bare minimum that the cat requires. So matter of SV is wrong, said the First Circuit. Apparently, this is consistent to some degree with every circuit to have addressed the issue, which includes the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th, 9th, and 10th circuits. Seems like matter of SV isn't the best case to rely on at the BIA. 
Unclear which tribunal applied the wrong matter of SV standard here, but the First Circuit believes that the BIA improperly reviewed the IJ's findings on the issue. The BIA deferred to the IJ's acquiescence finding when it should have reviewed the finding de novo. So for that reason and the matter of SV thing, it all goes back to the BIA. With matter of SV in tatters. Having remanded the matter already, the First Circuit went on to explain quite a bit of guidance for applying the willful blindness standard. The First Circuit believes that willful blindness requires a two-part test. Quote, An applicant seeking to establish acquiescence must first demonstrate the likelihood of a foreign government's awareness of torture, and then show a likely breach of the government's duty to intervene to prevent the torture. End quote. Again, this is all assuming non-governmental actor tortures. Torture by the government is a different analysis. And this two-part test to me actually appears a bit of a higher standard for non-citizens as compared to that sometimes required in other circuits. Then again, agreeing with the Second Circuit, the First Circuit is, quote, skeptical that any record evidence of efforts taken by the foreign government to prevent torture, no matter how minimal, will necessarily be sufficient to preclude the agency from finding that a breach of duty to intervene is likely to occur, end quote. Emphasis by the court. So restated, minimal efforts by a foreign government to prevent torture by non-governmental actors, it would seem, will not preclude the likely breach showing required of willful blindness in the First Circuit. Interesting to see where this case law leads in the future. Not only that, the BIA apparently failed to comprehend, or at least analyze, that actually, Mr. H.H. feared both the Honduran government itself and MS-13. Separate facts and separate analyses were needed, but not conducted. Remand it all! Similar winning team as before with that last case, but add in to ACLU New Hampshire and saying out Kim, the Cal Western School of Law on Amicus, in addition to the University of Maine School of Law. Here, here to San Diego Law Schools. Plus, there's also an Amicus from, quote, current and former UN Special Rapporteurs on Torture, end quote. Kind of like the former IJ Amicus group? Oh, they showed up too. Wouldn't mind getting an opinion from them in my cat cases. Shoot me their digits, Mr. Kim. Probably makes legislative history research a little bit easier as well. Congratulations to everyone. I've had just about enough of the First Circuit and the cat, but there's also this piquing my interest. Not only did the First Circuit remand for all the things I just said, but it also remanded because, quote, the agency also failed to meaningfully address Mr. H.H.'s alternative theory that MS-13 itself is a de facto state actor, end quote, in Honduras. That is one of the white whales of asylum and cat law, that these gangs controlling much of these countries are actually the government itself, at least in part meaning that no willful blindness or unable or unwilling to control type analysis would ever be required, because they are the government. While it's all ultimately up to the BIA on remand here, the First Circuit went on to say that the question of whether the non-state actor, here MS-13, is acting, quote, under color of law, is the functional equivalent of the 14th Amendment's state action requirement, end quote. Progressing further down with this logic, quote, 
A private party can be treated as a state actor in rare circumstances, falling into three categories. 1. If the private party assumes a traditional public function when performing the challenged conduct. 2. If the private party's conduct is coerced or significantly encouraged by the state. And three, if the private party and the state have become so intertwined that they are effectively joint participants in the challenged conduct, end quote. Here, that conduct, I guess, would be torture. We are getting dangerously close to a workable standard on how to treat non-state actors as state actors. Might have to start calling saying, yo, Kim, Ishmael. Not gonna lie, sounds like the BIA needs to grant Honduran deferral on remand before things get out of control. Looks like the above might already be the law in the First Circuit. Celebrate in New Hampshire tonight, ACLU. And thank you for pushing the needle forward on cat and asylum law. And congratulations to Mr. HH, of course. And that is HH v. Garland. Next is Dong v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on October 19th, 2022. This case is about credibility. Judge Tashima dissented. Mr. Dong is from China and entered the United States with a student visa in 2011. He timely applied for asylum a few months later, claiming that he was persecuted and feared persecution on account of his Christian faith and attendance of an unsanctioned house church in China. He was placed in removal proceedings to litigate his claim. In his initial written statement in support of his claim, he said, for example, that during a detention by police in early 2011, quote, the police beat him and questioned him about church activities. They also forced him to sign a guarantee letter, which stated that he would not participate in the church. After he was released, he was required to report regularly to the police station. Authorities also came to his home and threatened and harassed his family members, end quote. But later on in court before the immigration judge, he testified that he was detained for an entire week and interrogated twice during that time. He testified that during the incident, quote, two officers questioned him about the church and when he refused to talk, they punched and kicked him and beat him with their batons, end quote. The IJ deemed some of Mr. Dong's responses inconsistent, namely the fact that he had mentioned two interrogations in his testimony and one in his written statement. Plus, he had mentioned injuries in his testimony, but not in his written statement. Also, it appears that Mr. Dong's household registration identity document from China, submitted in support of his application, has authenticity issues. ICE noted during the individual hearing that it stated it was notarized after being personally presented by Mr. Dong on a date where Mr. Dong was already in the United States. The IJ denied the claim based on an adverse credibility finding and the BIA affirmed, as did the Ninth Circuit. To the panel, in the Ninth Circuit, the court must give a, quote, healthy measure of deference to agency credibility determinations, because IJs are in the best position to assess demeanor and other credibility cues that courts cannot readily assess on review, end quote. But that deference does not give IJs and the BIA a, quote, blank check, end quote, and, quote, the mere omission of details is insufficient to uphold an adverse credibility finding, end quote. I'll keep going on this good credibility case law, because the case actually has a lot of good standards to use to challenge adverse credibility findings on appeal to the BIA and in the Ninth Circuit. 
For example, quote, if the IJ relies upon purported inconsistencies to make an adverse credibility determination, the IJ must provide the non-citizen with an opportunity to explain each inconsistency, end quote. And if it's a good explanation, the IJ must do a better job explaining why to reject that explanation. In this case, there are two main issues. After shaking it out on appeal a bit, the first is Mr. Dong's failure to mention that second interrogation in his written statement. During the hearing, Mr. Dong explained that honestly, he just didn't think it was significant enough to mention in the written statement. He was trying to file his application quickly, there is a one-year deadline after all, and he was trying to focus only on the important stuff. To the Ninth Circuit, quote, Mr. Dong's omission on the first interrogation, a relatively insignificant event by his own account, is not enough to undermine his credibility, end quote. That being said, quote, the IJ also found Mr. Dong exhibited a suspect demeanor during this exchange, which merits special deference, end quote. After all, said the court, appellate bodies are reading cold records where demeanor can't exactly ooze off the page. Such was the case here. For example, Mr. Dong gave a long pause before one of his answers, and the IJ noted that, quote, only when Mr. Dong appeared to realize that his explanation for the omission was insufficient did he change his answer, end quote. This finding the Ninth Circuit would not disturb. In totality, and even though Mr. Dong gave a decent reason for why he neglected to mention that first interrogation the first time around, the IJ and the BIA explained sufficient reasons for rejecting it in this very fact-specific case. Combined with some other apparent inconsistencies, including some based on his medical injuries, and with the reasonable possibility that the household registration document might have been fraudulent, the Ninth Circuit majority believed it is a, quote, close case, end quote, and ruled against Mr. Dong. For Judge Tashima's part in dissent, though, he read the record in an opposite way, believed the IJ cherry-picked the record, and believed Mr. Dong's account, in fact, quote, remarkably detailed, consistent with his written declaration, and plausible in light of the U.S. State Department report in the record, end quote. And worth remembering, apparently, to the full Ninth Circuit here, a household registration document, even if fraudulent, and if not combined with other evidence of non-credibility, quote, is not the type of document an asylum applicant might use to escape persecution or gain entry into the United States such that its fraudulence would undermine an applicant's credibility, end quote. Something to remember if ICE ever brings up a fraudulent household registration document from China. And that is Dong V. Garland. That brings us to De Leon Lopez V. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on October 21st, 2022. This case is all about the cat. Like I said, it's cat week and Taylor Swift week. Judge Collins dissented in another very long decision. I'll do my best. Mr. De Leon is from Guatemala and has entered the U.S. without authorization a couple of times, and he has a removal order. He last entered in 2012 because, he testified, during his last residence in Guatemala, he was extorted and then beaten by men, including two men, who he knew, and who he knew knew, that he had just returned from the United States. They thought he had money, and they wanted it. Importantly, two of the assailants that he knew were, quote, dressed in the uniform of the National Civil Police, or PNC, 
carried handguns consistent with those of PNC officers and were known by the community to be police officers. End quote. Sounds like corrupt police officers. It was a pretty bad attack, and they even stabbed Mr. DeLeon with a machete multiple times. The assailants, again, some of them cops, others apparently not, took Mr. DeLeon's money and told him they were going to kill him. He was taken to the hospital and he got some serious treatment for some very serious injuries. He has psychological issues to this day. It was a small community in Guatemala and Mr. DeLeon knew the assailants, and his aunt called the police to report it. Other police, I suppose, made a report of the incident. The report reflects that the attack was a Mara 18 attack. Mr. DeLeon explained that many of the attackers, including the two who were dressed like cops, were with Mara 18. Nothing happened with his police report, but also, he never saw his assailants again. It also took him a full year to recover from his injuries, and he didn't like that nothing had ever happened with the police investigation. So he went to the very police office where two of the assailants had worked. They said that they couldn't help Mr. De Leon, but that he should try the public ministry in Guatemala. So he did that. A complaint was opened alongside other complaints against these individuals from other victims that had already been opened. Mr. De Leon even met with the office of the Guatemalan Attorney General. Nothing ever happened. Alongside all of this, Mr. De Leon had another incident with police. Essentially, he was taken off a bus and arrested by police when he refused the police officer's demands for a bribe. See, his elderly mother was taking a bus with him to sell goods, and the police wanted a cut. Mr. De Leon said no. At the police station, police, quote, took turns beating him with their hands and batons and kicking him with their feet, end quote. After two and a half hours, they let him go under threat. He reported on them anyway, and he went to stay in Guatemala City, and he didn't have any problems there. But he came to learn that men with guns and actual police officers were looking for him back in his small hometown. He therefore fled back to the United States after spending about a month in Guatemala City in early 2012. Detained, then placed in withholding-only proceedings, Mr. De Leon brought his claim before an immigration judge. And it would appear that the Department of State reports on Guatemala corroborate a lot of Mr. De Leon's claims about how bad police treatment is for people in Guatemala. Here, the Ninth Circuit quotes from it extensively. But the IJ denied. And in fairness, the country condition report was submitted shortly before the IJ rendered a decision. But then again, quote, the regulations say that the court must refer to the country conditions report, end quote. Emphasis by the court. The immigration judge deemed Mr. De Leon's fears speculative, and the BIA agreed. The Ninth Circuit did not. Starting with standards of review, which the courts always do, but I don't, for the sake of all of you. But the Ninth Circuit did start with a nice standard. That is, although it is deferential to the BIA in its review of many things, the Ninth Circuit owes, quote, no deference to inferences drawn from facts which are uncertain or speculative and which raise only a conjecture or a possibility, end quote. A good quote to remember and a good standard to argue. Plus, following the Supreme Court's recent Ming Dai decision, which, if I'm being honest, seemed to be intended to help the BIA in the Ninth Circuit, this panel stated that the, quote, Ninth Circuit has set aside the BIA's factual findings when the basis for the findings was insufficient or illogical, end quote. And indeed, the Ninth Circuit has recently, I believe almost entirely in the adverse credibility context. 
So, the stage is set for the Ninth Circuit to reject the BIA's findings here. And reject it did. First, the Ninth Circuit wasn't having it with the IJ and the BIA's belief that Mr. De Leon hadn't established that two of his attackers were cops. That's important because cat protection generally requires governmental actors, and Attorney General Barr's 2020 decision in matter of OFAS essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing former Attorney General Barr, that if a cop tortures you, that's past torture, even if he's just doing it because he's a horrible person and not at the direction of his country's government. So, if you can, you want to establish that your client's torturers are cops. The Ninth Circuit wasn't having the BIA's contrary findings here. The dudes were in uniform, and Mr. De Leon, found credible, testified that he knew them, and he knew them to be cops. And the community knew them to be cops. That other police station knew them to be cops. Etc. Etc. No dice on that, BIA. It didn't matter that they or the fellow attackers might have also been Mara 18 members. Quote, it is of course possible for law enforcement officers to be associated with a street gang, end quote. And the possibility that they fled Guatemala doesn't mean much, quote, corrupt police officers can fear that they will be caught and prosecuted, end quote. Ninth Circuit, not me, y'all. Seems like the IJ also may have misunderstood a lot of testimony. Those are all important findings. Now we have state actors beating Mr. De Leon severely. It seems we have past torture. It's up to the BIA to ultimately decide it, but the Ninth Circuit strongly implies that the BIA will need to roll over on this one. Because, quote, an applicant for relief under the Convention Against Torture is not required to show acquiescence by the government when instances of past torture are directly inflicted by a public official, end quote, like a corrupt cop. Again, while this doesn't require a future torture finding and therefore a CAT grant, as I just discussed in the First Circuit decisions, it is strong evidence that an individual will be tortured if returned to the country in the future. In this case, true, said the Ninth Circuit, things have changed for Mr. De Leon in Guatemala a bit as it's been a lot of years. But the BIA still erred in finding that Mr. De Leon hasn't established future torture. In addition to the now near-certain past torture finding that will occur on remand, there were other incidents of harm that apparently were unconsidered by the IJ and the BIA in totality. Plus, the IJ and the BIA appear not to have considered the Department of State Country Condition Report, which, wait for it, corroborates that people like Mr. De Leon are tortured by the police in Guatemala. Good to know. That corroboration includes, for example, that in Guatemala there is, quote, widespread institutional corruption, particularly in the police force. This corruption was characterized as one of the principal human rights abuses, end quote. Good to know. And even though Mr. De Leon had lived in Guatemala City safely for about a month, and even though to get cat protection, a non-citizen must show, at least in some circuits, that he or she cannot safely relocate to avoid the torture, well, I'll just quote the whole thing. Quote, the parties do not cite, and we have not found, any cases holding that a single month's stay in another region of the proposed country of removal qualifies, by itself, as sufficient affirmative evidence that the applicant could safely relocate to that region. That gap is not surprising. A one-month sojourn in another area of the proposed country of removal does not constitute substantial evidence that an applicant will not be found by his adversaries if he remains there permanently. End quote. 
without Guatemala City to latch onto for relocation. The IJ and the BIA were in trouble here with their relocation finding, because in the Ninth Circuit at least, and remember it, quote, to find that an applicant can safely relocate to another part of the country, an IJ or the BIA needs to cite affirmative evidence supporting that determination, end quote. Not just a lack of evidence. The IJ and the BIA have a burden, it would appear. Else their decision to deny cannot be based on substantial evidence. At the end of the day, quote, The record indicates that a common theme underlies Mr. De Leon's two violent encounters with the Guatemalan police. In both instances, Mr. De Leon refused to submit to corrupt police practices involving the theft of his money or goods, end quote. The IJ and the BIA needed to consider this character trait when analyzing whether he would suffer torture from corrupt police in the future. So long case is towards the end of this week, and I need to catch a flight. So I'm going to wrap it up. Mr. De Leon is getting his cat remand, and Judge Collins in dissent is not happy about the logic used to get there. But my good friend and San Diego colleague Carla Krause is. Congratulations, Carla, on this win for petitioner. And that is De Leon Lopez v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M-Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.